This episode is sponsored by Smile Brilliant. If you are anything like me, you're a bit overwhelmed by all the teeth whitening products on the market. This next sponsor has provided me with some very interesting facts to pass along to you and help you make the best decision for your whitening needs. Fact one, teeth whitening does not whiten your teeth. It removes the stains and restores the tooth to its natural color. Natural colors vary per person, but for the most part, it's an off-white or a slightly yellowish undertone. Fact two, teeth whitening does not damage teeth, but it does temporarily dehydrate them. When dehydrated, the pores in the enamel are open and exposed. Open pores invite acids and sugars, which, as we know, lead to tooth decay, which is why you should avoid any sugary substances for at least 24 hours after whitening. Also, avoid staining substances, as the teeth are more susceptible to restaining during this period. Fact three, tooth sensitivity is the result of tooth dehydration. When the pores of the enamel are open, the teeth become dehydrated, exposing the nerves to the elements. As the tooth rehydrates, the sensitivity will dissipate. To accelerate the rehydration and curb sensitivity, you should use a post-whitening application known as remineralizing or desensitizing gel. Fact four, caps and veneers cannot be whitened because they do not have pores for the stains to latch onto. Prior to having any dental work done, you should whiten your teeth, restoring them to their natural color as the dentist will be color matching to your current shade. Fact five, the key to teeth whitening is delivery device. So long as the whitening product is a peroxide-based whitener, it will remove the stains. What differentiates one product from the next is the device that holds the whitening agent to the tooth without interruption, which means those whitening strips on the shelves actually neglect the crevices and molars, and they slide around on your teeth. And those generic trays, saliva actually floods them because they're too bulky to create a seal. And the LED lights are simply a novelty item that add no benefit as they can't put out UV light necessary to actually do the job. So given all of this information, what product should you get to help whiten your teeth? The number one whitening device recommended by dentists is a custom-fitted tray. Now, you can have your dentist make your trays for about $300 to $600, or you can head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use their lab-direct mail-in process for a fraction of the price you would pay at a dentist. Oh, and if you grind your teeth at night, you can also purchase the Smile Brilliant custom-fitted night guards. Want to try it for yourself? Head over to www.smilebrilliant.com and use the code MORNING for the exclusive Morning Cup of Murder discount. That's smilebrilliant.com, promo code MORNING. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of Murder... It's difficult to solve a crime when there is no connection to the killer. No clear motive, no known enemies, and no DNA that matches to anyone in the system. On July 17, 1992, a couple was killed in their mobile home in what police were sure was an isolated crime committed by an unknown man. What they didn't know was that they had a serial killer on their hands. A serial killer who made sure he and his victims had no connection that would make him a suspect. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. 
Sebastian Alexander Shaw, born Cha Quang Ho, on November 28, 1967, in South Vietnam, moved to Oregon with his father at a young age. Despite coming an altar server at the local Catholic church, Chow had some behavior problems that made him a difficult child. After living on a Marine base for a few months with his father, the pair were relocated to Port Arthur, Texas, and then, when he was 14, they made their way back to Woodburn, Oregon, where Chow attended the local high school. Things with Chow seemed to settle down, but at some point during his teen years, the young boy attempted to overdose on aspirin, but was able to survive his attempt. The final straw for this father-son pair came when a fight in 1985 ended with Van beating Chow with a piece of wood, resulting in the young man moving in with his aunt and cousin in California, where he found work before joining the Marines. After serving overseas in Okinawa, Japan in 1990, Chow applied for dishonorable discharge and was sent back to Oregon, where he took a job as a security dispatcher and officially changed his name to Sebastian Alexander Shaw. Now, while Sebastian's life did seem to have its turbulent times, it wasn't exactly one of the worst stories we've heard about a serial killer's young life. But whatever happened during those years, some of which may still be unknown, Sebastian wound up being an explosively angry young man. One that friends said once shot a television set and threatened his roommate's life for leaving dirty dishes. But eventually, Sebastian learned to hide his violence from those who he cared about and channel it somewhere much more dangerous. On July 1st, 1991, the body of 40-year-old J. Andrew Rickbeal was found in his Portland home by his roommate and apartment manager. Suffering from a knife wound to the neck, the quadriplegic bled out in his bed completely helpless. When witnesses were questioned, neighbors said that Jay was a New Age believer who would constantly invite strangers into his home to have discussions or convert his visitor to his beliefs, which explained why there weren't any signs of forced entrance on the apartment door. He was a good man, albeit trusting, who gave out his name, address, and sometimes money to anyone that he felt needed it, which resulted in a few robberies. Now, right around the time Jay Rickbeal was killed, Sebastian Shaw was fired from his job at Paragon Cable following complaints by colleague Shirley Phillips of sexual assault. He was, of course, furious with his sudden unemployment and, as I said earlier, was known to vent his anger in dark and terrible ways. He chose Jay at random and the trusting man was attacked as he lay in his bed. Unfortunately, the police didn't know about Sebastian, but made the wise decision to collect DNA from the scene and keep it tucked away in case a match came in the future. A day that would come in 2001, but more on that in a minute. On July 20th, 1992, the bodies of Todd Rudiger, 28, and Donna Ferguson, 18, were found inside their trailer home by their own fathers. Both suffering from stab wounds to their neck, just like Jay Rickbeal, a coroner was able to determine that they likely died on July 17, 1982, and that Donna, before bleeding out like Todd, had been bound and raped. This time, Sebastian, still unknown to police, was angry with a few of his co-workers. So angry, he wanted to kill them, but knew if he did, it would be traced right back to him. So instead, he picked a random woman from a checkout line and followed her home. 
On May 27, 1994, a man in Castro Valley, California named John Lynn came home from work to find the naked body of his 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, lying on the bathroom floor. She had been stabbed multiple times but showed no signs of sexual assault nor signs of a struggle. She was killed just two days after her 14th birthday and in a window of less than two hours before her father came home. Jenny was a straight-A student with friends and family who loved her. She didn't have an enemy in the world. So when she was killed, police started to really consider the fact that maybe there was a dangerous killer in their midst who took the life of a complete stranger. Though at this point, there was nothing connecting her murder to the three victims from Portland. Therefore, the idea of an active serial killer wasn't even really on their radar. Every resource local police had was thrown at Jenny's case. And almost immediately, the FBI was brought in to help solve her murder. Soon thereafter, they announced that they were looking for a young man on a motorcycle who was last seen handing out leaflets in the area, asking him to come forward so they could question him as a witness. And John told police about a strange encounter he had just two weeks before Jenny's murder. He said he was stopped in a parking lot by a disheveled man who claimed to have, quote, got his daughter. But knowing Jenny was at a violin lesson, he wrote off the strange man and continued on his day. A composite sketch was created of the stranger and it was released to press along with a plea for any witnesses. While they waited for progress in the case, Jenny's family created the Friends of Jenny Lynn Volunteer Organization to help spread awareness about her case. It was backed by the Adam Walsh Center and the father of Polly Class, whose case we covered on August 5, 2019. All of their hard work seemed to pay off, and that October, a neighbor came forward saying that she saw a stocky man in a dark jacket and cap outside of the Lynn home near the time of the murder, but said she had been afraid to come forward before, thinking the killer would exact revenge on any informants. The case seemed to be coming to a crawl when, completely by chance, Sebastian Shaw ended up on police radar. On August 31st, 1994, Portland police found Sebastian sleeping in a Pontiac that had been stolen from a San Ramon, California neighborhood several days after Jenny's murder. Assuming that this was simply a car theft, police took a peek inside and found what they called a fully stocked murder kit, complete with a handgun, two rifles, a ski mask, surgical gloves, duct tape, knives, binoculars, and plastic handcuffs. Pretty quickly, they realized that they had just completely accidentally stumbled upon a potential murderer. But with nothing to keep him, and the Contra Costa officials declining an extradition for simple car theft, no charges were filed and Sebastian was let go. Now, Sebastian may have been released back into the world, but he left enough of an impression that investigators never forgot his name. On June 1st, 1995, a woman in Portland was bound, assaulted, and smothered before her screams forced her attacker to flee. When police arrived, they found seminal fluid was still in her mouth and swabbed for DNA. Remembering the man that they pulled over in 1994, Sebastian Shaw became a suspect pretty early on in the case. And thanks to the DNA swab and a discarded cigarette butt, Sebastian was arrested on February 20th, 1998, in connection to the rape and attempted murder. Now, when they arrested him, a search warrant allowed them to pull a blood sample that they ran through a list of their unsolved cases. 
The murder kit alone was enough to make them realize this attempted murder was likely not his first, and pretty soon their suspicions were confirmed. Sebastian Shaw was connected to the sexual assault of Donna Ferguson and the murder of both she and Todd Rudiger, and he was charged accordingly. Upon being indicted, Sebastian offered to confess to a, quote, package of murders. And considering the nature of his crimes, investigators were forced to take him seriously. You see, Sebastian was not connected to his victims at all. They were complete strangers chosen at random, therefore allowing him to elude police for years. And with very little in the way of evidence, they knew that his confession may be the only way to get a real, true victim count. Shortly after pleading guilty to Donna and Todd's murder and receiving two life sentences as a result, Sebastian confessed to a fellow inmate that he killed a total of 13 people. And when this was relayed to investigators, he offered to name victims if he was transferred to a federal prison where he could smoke. Shortly after, he was forensically connected to the murder of Jay Rickbeal. And two years later, he was found guilty of Rick's murder and received another life sentence. Though Sebastian's name was among the 50 other suspects in Jenny's murder in the early stages of her investigation, it wasn't until 2006 that he was formally and publicly named a suspect, due in large part to his close proximity to the murder when he stole the Pontiac. He has never been officially charged with her murder, though in the eyes of many, he is completely guilty. Her case remains unsolved, as do many of the murders Sebastian has confessed to. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on July 18th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.